Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Felice Gare, is the longest-serving American elected to any UN human rights body. She has served on the UN Committee Against Torture since 1999. This is what is known as a UN treaty body, and it's staffed by a small number of independent experts like Ms. Gare who monitor and evaluate compliance among countries that ratified the treaty. These bodies have no real formal power beyond writing reports and holding meetings, but what makes my conversation with Felice so interesting is that she describes how she's able to push the needle forward on human rights by creatively using what little authority she has. And this was a lesson she first learned while investigating the disappearance of the Soviet dissident Andrei Sakharov in the early 1980s. We appealed to the Working Group on Disappearances to inquire and find out what had happened to Andrei Sakharov since no one knew where he actually was. We thought he was in Gorky, but nobody really knew. And that began a really interesting uh, experience with UN human rights mechanisms where we learned that these mechanisms can help people everywhere, even in the most ideologically closed society. Uh, you could get some some movement. We actually got a postcard sent uh, from Gorky. Felice has had a very long career in human rights, and we trace the origins of her commitment to human rights from an early age, and more recently, to her work on the Committee Against Torture. We kick off our conversation with about a 15-minute discussion about the UN's evolving posture on women's rights and LGBT rights, and Felice tells a really interesting story about how an early bureaucratic decision at the founding of the United Nations helped enable the integration of women's rights into the broader UN human rights agenda. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I post one of these longer conversations with a foreign policy notable and luminary every Monday. And every Thursday, I have shorter conversations with journalists or think tank types about something topical and in the news. You can find them all on globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can peruse our robust archive of great conversations like the one you are about to hear. And now here is my conversation with Felice Gare, who is the director of the American Jewish Committee's Jacob Blaustein Institute for the Advancement of Human Rights. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. When the UN was created, they established a Commission of Human Rights as the only sub-body of the Economic and Social Council named by name in the UN Charter, because if it wasn't in there, it wouldn't have happened, and it would have been ignored. And they created four subcommissions, one of which was a subcommission on the status of women under the Commission on, uh, on Human Rights. 
and between one resolution and the next, the subcommission disappeared, mm-hmm. and a commission on the status of women was created as a wholly separate body under the Economic and Social Council, but not under the Commission on Human Rights, and they went their separate ways. And bringing them back together is a long story and an interesting story, and the uh, I've written about it, uh, but the Commission on the Status of Women uh, has uh, not, until the Beijing conference, did it take a clearly human rights approach to these issues. So that's interesting. So and, you're saying it was really like the bureaucratic makeup of the United Nations early early on helped determine the, the, the place of women's rights in the broader international human rights agenda of the UN? Well, and also the, the makeup of the people who were involved. The women wanted it separate, and the men wanted it subordinate. And uh, there weren't a lot of women in those years, so in the UN and in these uh, different places. So uh, what generally tended to happen was the 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 women were successful in getting it um, moved into a separate entity, and they were very happy with that because they were actually able to develop it in ways that wouldn't have happened if it was under the Commission on Human Rights. So it was who they were, it was the times, it was the subject matter, economic and social rights issues, you know, sort of had a subordinate uh, position uh, for many years to civil and political rights in the uh, Commission on Human Rights. And yet in the women's rights uh, world, it was a full partner and a key element. So things happened there that wouldn't have happened uh, elsewhere. And um, and it, it really has been... Uh, uh, a very important uh, corrective. What was so significant about the Beijing conference? Why did it? Why is it being celebrated and venerated in, in such a way twenty years later? Well, first of all, it was the largest UN conference uh, at its time. Thirty-five thousand women, uh, including the NGO conference, um, met in in Beijing. Uh, they brought the issue of uh, women's rights clearly into the mainstream of the women's agenda. Uh, there had been a development agenda. There had been um, a health-related agenda. There had been other agendas uh, uh, regarding women and the status of women. Uh, it wasn't about, it, uh, even though the themes were equality, development, and, and peace, um, the the conference in Beijing clearly and straightforwardly with sections dealing with international women's rights and violence against women, uh, put these issues onto the women's rights agenda and the international rights agenda at the same time. Uh, what sort of resistance did that meet by other members, UN member states, by some member states who you know, have perhaps violence against women embedded deeply in their, in their cultures? Well, you know, the really interesting thing is that when the um, World Conference on Human Rights met in 1993 in Vienna, a much smaller world conference and one that argued mostly about universality of rights and whether there would really be enforcement of rights, the issue of women's rights and violence and combating violence against women was the only subject that came into the final conference in Vienna without objection from the uh, previous preparatory conferences. So there was a lot of um, 
agreement that this subject could go forward. Now, we could have a good argument on why. Some people thought it was just fine to bring it to the Vienna Conference because it was harmless, because they trivialized it, because they thought it was something of a lesser breed of rights uh, and, and, and issues. Uh, and others were concerned because they didn't want to bring certain aspects of uh, economic and social rights and development-related rights into uh, the, the uh, purview of, of the World Conference. In the end, the objections in, uh, in Beijing and in the human rights world to the um, uh, Beijing formula uh, had more, uh, really came from two areas, and they were more um, religion-based and... Uh, I would say uh, reflecting the overall status of rights uh, in some of the countries as well. So there, there was at one point the Holy See and uh, Islamic leaders from Iran and, and, and uh, nearby countries uh, who were opposing elements of the Beijing World Conference that called for non-discrimination against women because they said if something is in the... Um, uh, holy books uh, of each religion uh, about women. It uh, being having a different status. Uh, that status didn't necessarily that didn't necessarily constitute discrimination. It was just different. And if it was, and if it was uh, somehow um, uh, called for from above, uh, that uh, it wasn't from man or woman to change that by establishing non-discrimination. So non-discrimination in, in, in inheritance rights uh, was a big controversy mm-hmm. in um, Beijing. Uh, non-discrimination in, uh, in terms of um, a whole series of uh, areas that you and I would think of as uh, ordinary social uh, rights and concerns um, was was a was a, uh, a very serious uh, set of uh, concerns, and then of course there were the whole sexual and reproductive um, mm-hmm. rights issues, uh, which um, have uh, continued to be of concern uh, for many, uh, but which um, a, a certain group of countries um, felt were. Uh, Inappropriate. They they felt they went beyond the population conference in Cairo, uh, and that um, and that they were um, um, just just plain inappropriate. And of course, the world as a whole didn't agree. Uh, these were just a few countries that disagreed. And um, and when they got to Beijing, one of the, again going back to my earlier point about it's not just the what or the bureaucratic structure; it's also the who. When they got to Beijing and they had the um, discussion about the sexual and reproductive rights section of the Beijing Platform for Action, it was high-level ministers uh, and officials from countries around the world who came together uh, in this meeting, uh, and they resolved that section of the final platform rather quickly. Mm. They felt that they... um, uh, they understood it uh, very clearly. The language had been um, uh, pretty clear. It was an advance on on Cairo language. Uh, it was an advance on language that went all the way back to the Tehran Conference in 1968, 
about the the basic right of all couples and individuals to decide freely and responsibly the number, spacing, and timing of their children and to have the information to do so and the right to attain the highest standard of sexual and reproductive health and the right to make decisions concerning reproduction free of discrimination, coercion, and violence. And so that combined the human rights concern and the equality concern uh, and the health-related uh, concerns all, all together. And um, the, um, uh, the outcome uh, was, was widely supported, and it went so far as to uh, go on in some detail about what had to be done uh, to combat violence against women which had really never had a clear articulation in the um, global mm-hmm. uh, meetings like this. So, so it was really uh, so a it's, very it's sort important of, meeting. Yeah. What, you're, what you're describing uh, that happened you know, 20, 25 years ago, um, I feel as if we're living through a similar moment now in terms of LGBT rights. Uh, and how they're becoming uh, mainstreamed into the broader UN human rights agenda, whereas they sort of used to be um, considered, if the UN considered gay or, or lesbians at all, it was typically through a health lens, um, you know, just in combating HIV AIDS. Uh, but now it, it seems to be uh, we're in this transformational moment for, for uh, LGBT rights on the international stage, uh, using the UN as a platform, similar to as how the UN was used as a platform 20 years ago to, to integrate and mainstream uh, women's rights. Uh, I'm wondering if you see that similarity, and if so, what lessons uh, you might be able to draw from your experience 20 years ago to apply to the, the cause or the quest for LGBT rights today? That's really interesting because uh, I do remember when the first resolutions dealing with HIV, AIDS, and human rights were raised. And you're right, they were mainly in a health context uh, or health rights context uh, that they were raised. Look, uh, there's, a combin- there's a series of things that, that uh, works, that has to work um, uh, together. Uh, first of all, being against silence, speaking out, articulating, identifying things, and calling them by their correct names. Uh, what is discrimination, uh, and 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 clearly uh, being uh, able to identify where and how that takes place. Second of all, having a a constituency of people who are concerned about this, and and uh, and that the constituency reaches beyond the people who are directly, um, shall we say, members of the group uh, concerned. Uh, and we and we have that now also both with um, women's rights and with LGBT rights as well. Uh, uh, third, um, it never hurts to have a very high level and visible spokesperson or two. And having had um, uh, that wonderful speech in Beijing that Mrs. Clinton gave, the women's rights as human rights. Uh, which so electrified people that she would speak about those issues in the way she did in China. Um, that was important then. Uh, a couple of years ago, she made a parallel speech in Geneva. It didn't get anywhere near the kind of attention, but on LGBT rights as human rights. And that was really important. It was important that she did it, um, and important it was so visible. But that's been carried forward by the two high commissioners for human rights, Navi Pillay and now... Uh, Prince Zaid, 
uh, and uh, by Ban Ki-moon personally in a very strong way with the Free and Equal Campaign and uh, a way that uh, you could not have imagined five or ten years ago seeing any UN Secretary General do. Uh, we need other uh, high-level spokespersons. We've we've got them in the media um, in terms of public figures and entertainment figures uh, and the like, and that makes a difference as well. Uh, so uh, the final thing is persistence. I mean, uh, you just need uh, people need to be um, uh, persistent, but also. Um, what I would call uh, alert to the many ways and places that these issues arise in the United Nations and in the rights contexts uh, at the national level as well as at the international level. And uh, if you put those different pieces together, um, you can uh, just change uh, not only public perception but also international understanding and law. Um, so I would love to trace your own uh, commitment to human rights issues uh, and, and sort of figure out where they come from. So where are you from? Where were you born? I was born in, not too far from uh, Manhattan in Englewood, New Jersey. It's about ten, six or ten miles away. Um, what did your parents do? Uh, my father was a merchant and uh, my mother was a housewife. Uh, and... And what I'm what sorry? what sort of conversations did you have growing up? Were they um, politically active? Did you grow up in a politically active household? Not particularly. Uh, they were uh, aware of public uh, affairs, and uh, uh, and of course, in those years, painfully aware of the history of what had happened in World War II, the Holocaust, and what had happened uh, with regard to anti-Semitism, which had gone viral uh, in the uh, pre-Holocaust and post-Holocaust periods. Uh, that was always something I, I I grew up understanding. Did they have stories about being discriminated against? I mean, that's the that's the generation. I, uh, you're you. What year were you born? You're born in the the fifties, I presume. In forty six. Forty six. Okay, so you're you're you know my parents' age, and so I would imagine that you know there that your parents you know pretty directly probably experienced some some discrimination. Well, they shared uh, stories about things that were you know part of. Uh, uh, general societal pressures that they felt, but I, I don't recall any specific case that they told me about. Mm -hmm. So why human rights? How did you get into the human rights field? Well, uh, you know, I had a strong interest, I guess, in exerting myself. Uh, and I was interested, I was very much haunted by this uh, the history of the Holocaust and, uh, and, and the opportunities lost. Uh, to have uh, made a difference. Did you have family members killed? Uh, not in my family, my husband's family. I, well, actually, my uh, that's not true, my grandmother's family. Um, but I was also, um, uh, I was also very... Um, uh, a child of of the of the age, I guess, and I was very much interested in uh, Russia and the Soviet Union and the Cold War and the things that were happening. And I met a lot of people, uh, including Soviet Jews, who um, uh, suffered because of that, uh, and that engaged me as well. That was the age of the Refuseniks, or probably a little before that, right? No, no, the refuseniks, sure. That was sure. it. So, what? How, how did how did you come in contact with uh, Soviet Jews? What was what was that experience? Uh, 
Well, I had um, uh, I had studied uh, Russian and I had studied the Soviet Union uh, as well. And uh, I uh, when I when I traveled there, I, I came in contact with uh, people who were uh, friends uh, or friends of friends uh, and uh, my husband's uh, uh, friends and others. And uh, I came to understand the kind of uh, pervasive repression that they lived in in a in the you know this was the post-Stalin era after all the most severe violence and um, uh, abuse uh, had had been years before, and yet it so completely circumscribed everything that happened. Uh, and permeated life uh, in the country uh, to such a degree that um, uh, a dissenter was a was a really uh, courageous person, um, or, or as they said at times, uh, somebody who uh, must have been somewhat insane in their context. Uh, and um, uh, so I came in contact with quite a number of people in, in that context. Do you remember one powerful story of a dissenter that, that um, really had a meaningful impact on you? Oh, goodness, there's so many, and I, I, I don't have one handy <laughs> that I can reflect on. I, I'm sorry. So, so, so how um, do you take this, uh, this interest, this desire, this connection to the Holocaust, and then to the persecution of Soviet Jews and channel it into a career? Uh, I didn't expect to channel it into a career. It was something that I did in addition to my career. I what was, was your in, career? Interested in improving East-West relations. I was interested in uh, in in bettering the world, and uh, I came also into contact with the um, uh, the family of Andrei Sakharov, the famous uh, Soviet uh, physicist uh, and uh, human rights. Uh, defender who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1974 and was very much involved with them and their case and the situation. Well, what was that case? Can you like. describe? And that? the more you did, and the more yeah. you do, the, the more you do, the more you want to do, I guess. And um, uh, for me, it was uh, uh, the more I traveled in uh, Eastern Europe uh, after graduate school. I was in. Um, uh, I worked at the Ford Foundation, and I was responsible for um, programs building bridges to Eastern Europe and working with uh, people in the Soviet Union and also helping uh, refugees who had um, uh, who had left. And uh, when I did, uh, I found that um, there was always things you just couldn't imagine were happening. And if you put your mind to it and you spoke out about it and you engaged important people and you didn't, uh, if you would always persist, uh, you could get change. You could get change one by one. You could bring about uh, improvement in people's lives. And so the more you do, it's the more you want to do because um, when you see you're making a difference, you know, then it really matters and, and, and you don't, you can't desist. Um, so how did you come into contact with the Sakharov family? How did that evolve? When I was at the Ford Foundation, I came in contact with some of the family members uh, who had, uh, and some people who were trying to help them. Uh, when I left the Ford Foundation, I um, was at a small uh, human rights organization that Sakharov had been involved with 
for many years, and I just uh, became uh, more involved with the, um, uh, the the plight that he and Elena Bonner, his wife, uh, faced, the children unable to uh, uh, live uh, well in the Soviet Union, having been able to 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 uh, come ab- abroad and um uh and we were always uh, trying there was always uh, something so basically on. you were trying to get them out of the soviet union we were trying to get them safe in the soviet union safe in the soviet union uh, <laughs> we're trying to keep them in and keep them safe we weren't trying to get them out now, how, uh, like how did you do that i mean just just through like diplomatic mm-hmm. contacts a little bit of everything, you know, public contacts, you know, organizing, you know, you can organize 10 or 20 Nobel laureates to speak out for their fellow Nobel laureate, if you can get public figures to speak out, if you could bring issues into the United Nations where you couldn't bring it elsewhere. I guess one of the interesting things, really interesting things we did very early on was after uh, Andrei Sakharov was um, arrested on the streets of Moscow and exiled to the city of Gorky, um, where he was uh, kept in essentially um, isolated, but like under a form of house arrest. But nobody knew where he was uh, or what had happened to him. Um, we lodged an appeal with the UN Working Group on Disappearances. Now, this is a five-member group that was uh, created by the Commission on Human Rights in 1980 to deal with the problem of Argentina. But it couldn't deal with Argentina because Argentina was such a powerful country at the time that the resolution couldn't mention Argentina, so it was created as a global mechanism to deal with disappearances. And, of course, it was conceived of as mostly dealing with Latin America because that was where the problems were in the 70s in terms of disappearances. It's gone on to be something that's focused all over the world. Iraq was the largest number one time, and now Sri Lanka has the largest number of people who've been apparently disappeared. But it's a global, um, globally focused thematic mechanism of the UN. And uh, but in those days there was uh, there were five members and the member from the Eastern Bloc was a Yugoslav, and um, he kept a close um, uh, watch on what was going on there. We appealed to the Working Group on Disappearances to uh, inquire and find out what had happened to Andrei Sakharov, since no one knew where he actually was. We thought he was in Gorky, but nobody really knew. Uh, and that began a really interesting uh, experience with UN human rights mechanisms, um, where you we learned that um, these mechanisms can help people everywhere, even in the most ideologically closed um, uh, society, uh, even in um, situations where people don't acknowledge that human rights are human rights because in those days the Soviet Union argued that the human rights paradigm uh, was uh, sort of part of the superstructure and, 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 you know, and, and, and ideological and so forth. They changed their position um, before or during Gorbachev, but in, that, in those years uh, they, they still hadn't. Um, and we found that on a humanitarian human rights appeal, um, from a global organization that constantly pressed with uh, logic and reason and facts and law uh, behind them that uh, you could get some some movement. We actually got a postcard sent uh, from Gorky 
uh, from the Sakharovs because of this working group. It's a long, long story, and it was highly um, uh, divisive at the time. Uh, but it taught me that with um, creativity, persistence, and intelligence, you can make UN mechanisms work, even when you don't think they can. That's really interesting to me because, you know, in, in my reporting, you know, on, on these UN human rights mechanisms, what are, I guess, now called special procedures in, in UN parlance, mm -hmm. basically like the special rapporteur for torture or for so-and-so or special rapporteur or on, you know, enforced disappearances, whatever, um, that if the country involved is a country like North Korea, that's like totally rejectionist, then you can't really make much progress. But when there's a country um, that wants to be seen as being on the right side of this issues, that cares what other countries think about them, then there's more opportunity for progress. But you're saying even in that case, back back in the day, when there was a country that was sort of rejectionist, the Soviet Union, about the whole apparatus and idea um, of uh, the, the, the UN uh, mechanism, that you were still able to make some progress. Yes, I mean, it, I'm, I'm not saying it's fast or simple. <laughs> no, nothing, um, nothing at the UN is ever that fast, right? <laughs> and, and quite frankly, with North Korea, if you fast forward to today, with North Korea, there's progress too. Um, it's, it's small. It isn't uh, always tra uh, transparent. Uh, but... Uh, you know, 20 years ago, nobody was leaving North Korea. Today, uh, there's been a steady trickle of people who have um, managed to leave North Korea through China mainly and who have been allowed to go to South Korea and some to this country. Uh, there are, um, what did they tell me, seven or 8,000 people today uh, who have um, been able to leave the country that way. Number one. Uh, number two, we have these terrific uh, prison camps. Um, and uh, yet the, the size, number, and shape of these camps seems to be changing. We're seeing this through satellite um, photography and imaging. Um, and there have been some small changes there. Do we know who the names of the people are who are in those prisons? Not really. But uh, maybe not ever, but through some of the escapees and through some of these uh, other uh, sources, we've been able to um, at least uh, raise the issues. Uh, North Korea says it doesn't care, but they came to the UN last year after a commission of inquiry uh, put all the information together on uh, North Korea that was available, uh, and they... Um, they engaged in a debate, well, so to speak, uh, with uh, Justice Kirby and the members of the uh, uh, of the Commission of Inquiry. They offered to let uh, the uh, special rapporteur visit under certain terms, which were inadequate, and so he hasn't visited. Uh, but they began to try to make some moves. Is it enough? No. Is it is it effective? Not yet. Uh, but is it nothing? It's not nothing. It may not be uh, what we'd like to see, and it may not be as much as uh, one can get through uh, public campaigning in other ways, but it's a tool that a amplifies and supplements those other uh, uh, techniques. Uh, the, you know, the UN's great um, uh, skill is that it has um, uh, global reach uh, and legitimacy. And therefore, it's a credible interlocutor, and uh, and uh, this this can make a difference. And 
Uh, I'm not saying it has yet with North Korea, but uh, I believe it can, and I believe uh, it's well worth uh, all of our efforts. And, and presumably, as the chair of the uh, Committee on Torture, or Committee Against Torture, uh, as you've been since 1999, you've had a front row no, seat. No, vice chair. Vice, vice chair, chair. Vice chair. Um, okay. since I, well, can you explain, what is that committee, and how were you appointed? What, what was that like, and, and how did you learn that you were being a, appointed vice chair of this committee? Well, uh, I was nominated for the committee by the U.S. in um, 1999 by the Clinton administration. Um, I had spent a number of years, uh, you just spoke about the Beijing World Conference, the World Conference in Vienna. I had served uh, as what was then called a public member on a number of U.S. delegations. That means you don't get paid, you just, uh, but, you, but you are included as a member of the delegation and you do engage in the strategizing and the advocacy efforts uh, as, me- as a member of the delegation. I'd done that for a number of years and I was asked by um, uh, people in the Human Rights uh, Bureau of the uh, State Department if I would uh, agree to have my name put forward for um, one of the treaty bodies. Uh, and I, ha- I was very familiar with the treaty bodies. I had done my advocacy with them as an NGO for a number of years before him. Uh, and uh, so I agreed. Um, and uh, then the states' parties to the convention, of which there were about 120 then, uh, have to elect you. And it was a tough. Uh, it was a. It was a tough uh, election uh, because um, uh, there were more than twice the number of. Um, uh, candidates as there were slots, and um, America, uh, we were running against a Canadian who felt that we were challenging him. I kept saying well, I would supplement his work, um, and, uh, but I was able to uh, obviously uh, appeal to enough uh, uh, of the state's parties to get elected then. How much do you think um, that election was a proxy on how other countries felt about American human rights policies as opposed to how other you know countries felt about you personally? I, I don't think it was that much about the U.S. policies. It was 1999 was the election, and uh, the uh, U.S. was generally was generally seen as one of the good guys in the, you know, uh, the country that didn't torture. torture. Right. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to, At you know, time. a few years later. A few years later, life got very difficult. Um, so and, what, was like, what was that like as, as the U.S. representative on this body when the reports of, of you know, enhanced interrogation techniques were, were being leaked in the media? Reported when the it. documentation about Abu Ghraib became public, uh, it was a shock for everyone. I uh, rather uh, uh, early on uh, signed a uh, a statement together with other directors of uh, U.S. human rights uh, organizations uh, criticizing uh, what what was happening. But it became much more difficult as an American to address uh, these issues with other countries uh, in the committee. And I felt that the uh, the credibility of the American experience in, uphold, in fighting for human rights, uh, defining it and upholding it, um, and the long-standing American outrage against the practice of torture had been dealt a very severe blow at that time. And so the way I dealt with it was actually to double down and work harder. Um, 
I, I became the committee's specialist addressing follow-up on every country's um, um, actions uh, to ensure that after they were reviewed by the committee, they would take action uh, to remedy abuse. Um, in the committee, you can't work on your own country. Mm-hmm. So when the United Kingdom came up, I think it was around 2004, um, I was one of the two principal investigators who would examine British compliance with the convention. And when the review took place, there were a number of British diplomats in Geneva who knew me, and they were a little surprised, and they said as much, that I asked so many questions and so many tough questions of the British representatives regarding their forces in Iraq and regarding the applicability of the convention to their um, actions. And afterwards, one of of those diplomats told me he was convinced that I was asking tough questions about Iraq and about detainees from the war against terror, so that when the U.S. came in, which was scheduled for about a year or so later, the same tough questions would be asked again. I thought it was very interesting that he saw it that way, and um, he wasn't wrong. Um, did the White House at, at some point, you know, withdraw its support for you uh, as as the vice chair of of the committee? I mean, how did that work? Because you're 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 sort of directly now at odds with the the Bush White House, but yet you're the American representative to this uh, treaty monitoring body that the U.S. is a signatory and a, and a ratified member of. No one was more surprised than I that they renominated me, um, and I assume. Uh, that uh, the only thing I can say as to why it happened was that uh, people in the State Department, uh, I assume it was the State Department only, uh, knew me from these uh, from these earlier delegations and from the earlier work I had done, and they wanted somebody who uh, um, was uh, was a tough opponent of uh, of human rights abuse to be on the committee. And uh, that they championed my not renomination. I don't know to this day uh, why uh, why it happened, but uh, but they did support me. I mean, could renomination. It, I guess it would have been too embarrassing to lose, but they could have yeah. put somebody else in, but they didn't. I mean, could it be I, I that like the White why. House, that like you know who chairs the the committee against torture at the UN is just not a concern of the White House. Like they could pretty much care less because they sort of ignore this body. I don't think the anyway. White House paid any. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think the White House paid any attention to the UN treaty bodies in in those years. Period. Um, and uh, so wh- where the attention was being paid was from the State Department, and of course they they would be. Expected to have uh, the concerns of the administration uh, in in mind, as well as the longer term concerns of the U.S. Um, and so, uh, I, I really don't know mm-hmm. um, um, so- what the factors were. But I've always assumed that it was just people who knew me um, were able to. Um, uh, arranged for me to be renominated. Um, so earlier you referenced, or you you discussed, sort of the incremental progress that has been made against North Korea using UN human mm-hmm. rights procedures. Um, in your time on the Committee Against Torture, have you seen something more than incremental progress? Have you seen any substantial progress uh, in any country or any, um, you know, or, or in any policy? Uh, that you could cite as being, you know, you have made a, a, a real and profound difference in this one area? Well, you know, it's it's always hard to pinpoint 
uh, how one thing leads to another, you know, and to a direct result. But I often uh, point to, you'll, you'll find this strange because it's not one of the world's worst countries, but I often point to Ireland as a great example of a direct link between the UN and the changes. Uh, we had the first report of Ireland to the Committee Against Torture in 2010 or 2011, it was somewhere around there. Uh, and um, one of the concerns that was raised in that context was brought uh, to our attention by a very uh, effective NGO uh, regarding women who had been uh, confined in these uh, laundries um, for many years because they uh, acted out in, in different ways. Laundries? Um, like, like laundromats? Laundries. Yes, huh. and they were these were called the Magdalene Laundries, and of course uh, named after Mary Magdalene, and the idea being that wayward girls and women, people who didn't conform, um, might someday, I guess, uh, become uh, reformed. Uh, but in any case, people were being uh, confined in these uh, homes. Uh, and sometimes for their whole lives. And, you know, they found mass graves and they found people's names were taken away from them and they don't even know who was in there and who wasn't. And there was a movie a year or two ago, Philomena, that, that uh, dealt with the uh, mother and baby homes, which are mm -hmm. like the Magdalene laundries, but a little different. Yeah, I saw that. Um, that was crazy. The, the laundries, yeah, the laundries were more uh, work, workhouses. Whereas the mother and baby homes, they had more contact with the children, and it was it was a little little more, ironically, even a little more humane. Um, and uh, so that these um, NGOs in Ireland had uh, had uh, interviewed uh, women who had been in these uh, homes, and what had happened to them, and what hadn't happened to them, and they came to us with the uh, those concerns. And uh, we were able to recommend to the we were able to ask the uh, government uh, officials in in the meeting because the way the committee against torture works is you have government officials come in with a delegation and the members ask questions uh, uh, to to examine their report and in this public dialogue uh, you have the opportunity to raise all kinds of questions directly. This was the first time that one of these meetings had ever been webcast, and it was webcast by some NGOs back to Ireland. And I asked the uh, head of the uh, delegation about um, uh, something he had said, which just really uh, disturbed me, which was that he said that all these girls had gone voluntarily to these institutions, or if they had been minors, with the consent of their parents. And I began a whole kind of uh, uh, Socratic <laughs> method of what does custody mean and what does consent mean in this context and what happens when you're no longer a minor? Did they have an opportunity to change? Uh, you know, when you had police accompanying the, the girls, taking them, if they, they had barbed wires around these facilities, if you escaped, you were returned by the police. Uh, you know, they, when, they, when they marched in the local parade, they were Mar they had police guards alongside of them and everything. I mean, you know, this was not exactly a free um, and voluntary uh, confinement type setting. And I asked the um, head of the delegation about this in a way that I guess captured the imagination of some of the Irish uh, press 
uh, and parliamentarians who saw this and who then brought these issues up in the parliament. And if I tell you that within uh, within weeks of our um, um, review, the uh, Irish uh, president had appointed a special commission to examine these issues, um, you'll appreciate that it had quite an impact. That commission then determined that, in fact, the Irish government had a huge amount to do with the, the people who were, they were saying it was private and that, that they had had nothing to do with this confinement. It turned out that they had. Um, and they uh, eventually issued a public apology, established a reparation scheme for these women. Um, uh, the prime minister apologized in parliament, uh, and this scheme is now uh, in progress. It's not uh, ideal, uh, but it's but it's uh, it's moving ahead. And um, I, I keep asking them to conduct an investigation, a proper investigation, because there are people who uh, it, who have uh, individual claims of abuse, and they've never been investigated uh, properly to hold anyone accountable. Uh, so people have gotten redress. Uh, the whole country has sort of come to terms with uh, uh, this part of their past and present, um, but uh, there have never been any investigations. So I keep I keep um, asking oh about that. Uh, but it was an it, it, I mean you can draw a direct line uh, from our committee to what has happened there. And while everything isn't ideal, it really was an extraordinary turnaround uh, in terms of their policy and practice. That's great. I mean, that's something I think a lot of people don't realize about the United Nations, that it does have that kind of, uh, it can have those kind of, um, you know, non-binding, all you're doing is interviewing people and writing a report. I mean, you're not, you know, you're not doing much more than that. Uh, except and we have, have no authority, exactly. and we have no authority to require any kind of uh, enforcement. So, uh, you know, it's but up to local, local uh, officials, local laws, local groups to make things happen, mm -hmm. and it's not up to the United Nations. But yet, you, yet you're able to get results through just the act of, of compiling interviews for a report and interviewing someone. And that's, that's I think, impressive and, and interesting. And something about the UN and the UN human rights bodies that I think the general public doesn't probably quite appreciate. Um, so we're, we're uh, just about out of time, but I, I'd love to give you the opportunity to plug anything you're working on right now uh, at the Blaustein Institute or, or beyond. Anything we should be looking out from from you or, or for any any of your other work? Well, I'm uh, eager to try to uh, to help uh, define um, standards for preventing genocide showing how the various UN mechanisms have identified risk factors for genocide and uh, actual steps that can be taken to diminish that. Um, in the um, uh, work of the uh, Committee Against Torture, we're just on the edge of having a review of, um, of China at our next session. Uh, and we're in the process of... Uh, uh, reviewing our our uh, methods of work in a way that, to try to get more 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 of the kinds of results I've just described uh, to you, and we're aware of everything from the fact that webcasting can make all the difference. The publicity and awareness is so enormously important in in the human rights uh, area, uh, and uh, uh, I'm hoping that we'll be in a position to. Um, uh, to see that this is uh, institutionalized in the UN and that we have uh, 
the opportunity to continue uh, probing case by case, country by country, and uh, trying to make this uh, important issue one that uh, disappears. Uh, well, Felice, thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing these stories with me. Uh, my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Felice. As always, you can get in touch with me via the contact form at globaldispatchespodcast.com. Let me know who you would like me to interview. I mean, I do this for you guys. So if you have any suggestions, recommendations of people to interview or topics to cover, just let me know. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Okay, we'll see you next time. Bye.